All right. If you'll take your Bibles, please. Open them to the book of Hebrews in the sixth chapter. Hebrews in the sixth chapter. We'll begin reading again at the thirteenth verse, focusing our attention on the nineteenth and the twentieth. For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is for them the end of all dispute. Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of his counsel, the heirs, excuse me, to the heirs of promise, the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope that is set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Let's pray. God, we pray that you would grant to us grace and understanding. We pray that you would lift high our hearts and our minds and our eyes and cause us, Father, to see your glory. And we pray, Lord, as we approach your word, that we would see the majesty of all that you have done. Remind us, God, that this is your work and not ours, and help us rejoice in that truth. In Jesus' name, amen. This is the day that defines us as Christians. It is the day that began the Church of Christ, and it is the culmination of three years of ministry, It is the inception of a movement that would change the face of the known world forever. The movement was the way, the ongoing walking after the risen Christ and the power of his life. And it was secured by the transformative reality of the empty tomb. No one was ready for what they encountered in the risen Christ. They had been warned. They had been told. They had been prepared over and over by the careful instruction of Christ himself, but all of it faded into oblivion when the stone was rolled away. For what it revealed was a victory so profound that nothing else could ever have even come close. It stands supreme as the very centerpiece of human history, the most important event in the whole of creation. Thus, this day defines not only us, but all of creation. For here the plan of God is revealed, as the master stroke of grace against the forces of evil. Here the mercy of God triumphs in defeat, and the love of God flourishes in its own destruction. Here all things come to the point of all creation, and that very simple point is this. God is a God of mercy and redeeming love, and he has revealed his own nature and heart written across the universe in scarlet, unescapable, unassailable, unchangeable, uncompromising, and absolutely unearned and unearnable. He has revealed to us in the grandeur of himself, and it is a glorious thing in our sight. This day, let us consider together the victory of the forerunner, so that as we see his working, we might worship and praise his name and the wonders of his infinite love. 
So the first thing the writer tells us is that this hope, which is ours by Christ's work, is an anchor. You think about what an anchor does for a ship at sea. An anchor, we think of it often just something that is used to help them stay at the dock so that they don't drift off so they can load the ships. But that's not its primary purpose. The primary purpose of the anchor was a lifeline to hold them strong in heavy storms so that the ship is not driven against the rocks. It's something which allows them to have life when everything around them is going crazy. And so it's important that the anchor was something sturdy and strong and reliable. You can find pictures of ancient anchors, and strangely enough, they haven't changed much in a couple of millennia. They look about the same as they always have because they do what they're supposed to do. They go deep, and they grab hold of something at the bottom, and they hold a ship against the storms. And beloved, in the midst of everything that's going on in this world right now, we need to recognize the truth that hope is for us an anchor of the soul. Hope is for us the reality that no matter what happens and no matter what comes against us, our God can be relied upon. And we have to know this. We have to know this in our bones because every single day that you are on this rock sucking wind, you are going to be assailed by something that wants to destroy you. You are going to be attacked by your own emotions. You're going to be attacked by your own feelings. You're going to be attacked by circumstance. You're going to be attacked by physical illness. You're going to be attacked by other people. You will be assailed at every turn. And if you are not steadfast, resting in the hope that's ours in Christ, you're going to allow those attacks to undo you. You're going to allow them to knock you loose from your moorings. And your life will become adrift. And ultimately, a life that is adrift for long enough suffer shipwreck. It's important for us to understand this, and it's important for us to understand that what God has done in the resurrection of Christ is given us a stability and an anchor and a hope in the midst of whatever happens, because this is our assurance. The very worst thing they can do to you is send you home. The very worst thing they can do for you is provide for you a means to achieve that which Christ himself has purchased. That They can't hurt you. They can't touch you. They can't harm you in any way that actually matters. And if you lose sight of that by, by allowing your life to become focused on something other than Christ, then all of a sudden what you find is that the things that they touch matter to you more than they should and they hurt more than it should Because you are unattached to your anchor. Nothing else can withhold and nothing else can withstand those kinds of forces. It is Christ and Christ alone. He is the anchor. Look at Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, starting at verse 11. Paul writes this. In him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, 
which was contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. So no matter what it is that you're facing, what the scripture affirms for us is that the death of Christ and the victorious resurrection of Christ is your guarantee of triumph in the midst of your storms. No no matter what you're facing, no matter what you're looking at, no matter what hardship is coming against you, if it's emotional hardship, loss or sorrow or betrayal or fear, Christ has triumphed over it. If it is spiritual assaults, sin, separation from the Lord, suffering for rebellion, Christ has triumphed over it. If it's physical hardships, death, suffering, sickness, Christ has triumphed over it. All of these things were both endured by Christ and overcome by Christ in his resurrection from the grave. There is nothing that you will ever suffer that Christ himself has also not suffered in your place. There is no temptation which has seized us except what is common to man, the scripture says. The scripture says we have a high priest who is tempted in all ways just as we are, yet was without sin. No matter what it is that you're facing, do not ever think for one moment that Christ doesn't understand and that Christ has not already emerged victorious. Our problem is that all too often we take the single greatest victory that has ever been handed to us and we try to stuff it into a little tiny box and say that's a religious thing, nothing else matters. Do you understand that the resurrection of Jesus is your life in everything? Do you understand that it affects your finances, that it affects your marriage, that it affects your relationships, that it affects your solitude, that it, it affects every single part of your life, bar none? You cannot take the resurrection of Christ and stuff it into a little box and say that only matters on Sunday between the hours of 9.30 and noon or 12.15 because the preacher's long-winded. You can't do that. Because that's not what it is. The resurrection of Christ is the most powerful, most potent, most important thing that has ever happened. And it changes everything. It is the guarantee of God's victory over whatever it is that you are facing. I don't care what it feels like. It doesn't matter if it hurts. It doesn't matter if you don't see a way clear. It doesn't matter if you don't understand what God is telling you to do. None of those things matter. The answer to your dilemma is the resurrection of Jesus Christ because in that truth, He has triumphed over whatever you're facing. And you need to trust that truth and you need to trust the God who has done it. He has emerged victorious. Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. Now, not only has Christ provided for us this broad spectrum of victory, he has also provided for us clarity and understanding in the knowledge of our acceptance into the presence of God. Look with me again. Hebrews chapter 6. 
This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, which enters the presence behind the veil, where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. In this entering of the veil, in this passing behind what God has erected in the Old Testament as a separation, he has offered the sacrifice of atonement once and for all. That's the meaning of his entering behind the veil. He went behind the veil to sprinkle the blood of his own death on the true mercy seat of God. And so no longer do we need the ongoing sacrifice for sin. Hebrews 7.27 says that he does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once and for all when he offered up himself. We no longer need anybody else to continually offer a sacrifice for us. There's no need for a continued sacrifice. Hebrews 9.12 says, Not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place, having once for all obtained eternal redemption. There is no ongoing death of the mediator. And this is important to understand because we do not consider Christ crucified apart from Christ raised. We do not exalt the crucifixion of Christ apart from the empty tomb. We do not focus our attention on continually reliving the sacrifice of Christ. We do not offer a mass whereby we think that we can command God to come down from heaven and enter into our human elements and thereby re-sacrifice Christ by the power of some imagined priest. We do not do this because we do not need this. The mediator has died and now lives forever doing his ongoing work of mediation, but the sacrifice is complete. Look at Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. Beginning at verse 5, please. We have been united together in the likeness of his death. Certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him. Past tense. That the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who died has been freed from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we also shall live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. I'm going to read that again. The death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies, that you should obey it in its lusts. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under Grace. We have the promise of 
the eternal work of Christ as our mediator. Beloved, hear this very carefully. It is a work that belongs to Jesus Christ alone. He does not share the role of mediator with anybody. There is no other mediator. There is no other name. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 5 and 6 say, There is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. Or look at Hebrews chapter 9, verses 13 and 14. If the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. For this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance. Beloved, understand this. We do not pray to saints, We do not pray to Mary. We do not pray to Grandpa or Grandma or anybody else to help us with anything. We pray to God through Christ by the power of the Spirit, period. There is no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved. There is no other mediator. There is no other intercessor. There is no other redeemer. There is no other for whom we turn to life. There is Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. He is the high priest of the new covenant. And in him there is life, and that means there is no longer ever a need for any human priest. I am not your priest. I am your pastor. I am your shepherd. I am your teacher. I am not your priest. I do not intercede on your behalf for God except in prayer. Christ is your intercessor. Christ is your mediator. Look at Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8, beginning at verse 1. Now this is the main point of the things that we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heavens a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the Lord erected and not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it is a necessary thing that this one also have something to offer. For if he were on earth, he would not be a priest, since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve a copy and the shadow of the heavenly things, as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle. For he said, See that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. But now he has obtained a much more excellent ministry, inasmuch as he also is a mediator of a better covenant, which was established on better promises. There is no longer any barrier between us and God. So the role of an ongoing priesthood is a travesty. There's nothing separating the children of God from God. The barrier has been removed. The veil has been torn asunder from top to bottom. And the barrier between us and God that the veil represented has been shattered by the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Look at Ephesians chapter 2. 
Ephesians, in the second chapter, starting at verse 14. He himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is, the law of commandments, contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were afar off and you who were near. For through him we both have access by one Spirit to the Father. This is what our God has done. That barrier has been removed and we are accepted in the presence of God. And we are united unto him by the blood of Christ. We were separated from God by our sin. Make no mistake about it. Prior to your conversion, prior to your salvation, there was still a barrier erected between you and God. It was your rebellion, your sin, your hatred of God. But Christ, in of himself, and according to his own death and according to his own blood, removed that barrier, and we have been restored to a right fellowship with God by faith in Christ. We have been restored to Him. Not restored to somebody else, and not restored to something else, but restored to God and restored to fellowship with Him because He is the one who has performed this great work. And beyond that wonderful reality, we have been adopted into the family of God. Beloved, hear this. You have been brought into the family of God and adopted and bear His name. You are a child of the King. You are a blood-bought child of the Most High God. And you have been given a new name and a new identity and a new family and a new relationship and a new set of resources and a new everything because you have been brought into the family of God and He has chosen to call you His child. And he has undertaken to provide for you everything that is needful. Amen. That's his job. Listen to how Paul describes it in Romans chapter 8. Turn, if you would, Romans 8, beginning at verse 15. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. This is the will of God for us. And it is not constrained by anyone. Nobody forced him to do anything. It is his sovereign will, ordained before the foundations of eternity, in the divine covenant which was established before creation. It is a covenant between the totality of the triune God, and he himself, in all of his persons, participated in this covenant. God the Father chose to select a people according to His own pleasure. He agrees to accept the sacrifice on our behalf. 
And He ordains all things in order to accomplish His purposes in us. And He will display His own glory to the heavenly places as He fulfills the outworking of His plan. God the Son agreed to become a man, divesting Himself of His glory for our sake. He agreed to pay the price for the chosen ones. And He agreed to endure the wrath of God to pay the penalty for our sin. God the Spirit agreed to call the chosen to life. He imparts spiritual understanding in them so that they might see their sin and repent. He seals them against the day of redemption. And He works out the ongoing work of sanctification in our lives so that we might bring glory and honor to the Father and the Son as we are conformed to the image of the Son, to the glory of the Father forever. Now there is no part of this work of redemption which is shared with any saint, false queen, or any other imagined helper. No demon has the power to disrupt the working of God, and he will not share his glory with another. Anytime anybody tries to give any of the glory of God's work in salvation to any being besides God, it is heresy and it is an attack against the glory of God. And we need to recognize that truth and we need to speak plainly about it and we need to be faithful to stand the ground that is truth. Beloved, I understand that we live in a community where a whole lot of our friends and neighbors believe that the Queen of Heaven is really their source of salvation. But you need to understand that that is a lie from the pit of hell. And that they are not your brothers and sisters in Christ, for they do not honor Christ as King. You need to share the Gospel with them. You need to be faithful to speak the truth and not be silent when you're given an opportunity. Teach truth where truth is needed. That's our responsibility. That's always our responsibility. Full disclosure and fair warning, they probably won't take it well. Do it anyway. If you love them, if they are your friends, if they are your neighbors, do it anyway. Speak the truth. Because God is not complacent about people stealing His glory. God is not one to take it lying down. And there will come a day when he will vindicate his glory in the eyes of all. And those who believe lies and those who teach lies will give an account for those lies. We are in possession of the gospel, for God has given it to us. Now, this also means that the priesthood which Christ has given is an eternal priesthood. The order of Melchizedek is a priesthood apart from bloodlines. Now, we're going to spend a whole lot of time in the next year unpacking Hebrews chapter 7 and looking at everything that this means. So this is a really high-altitude flyover. But the priesthood of Melchizedek is a priesthood which is not established by being connected to the bloodline of Levi. God has given Christ a priesthood outside of the Aaronic line, outside of the line of the descent which all of the Jewish priests belong to. Look at Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7, the first three verses. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom Abraham gave a tenth a part of all, first being translated king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace, without father, without mother, 
without genealogy, having neither the beginning of days nor the end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually. So, this means that the priesthood of Christ, like the priesthood of Melchizedek, is separated from his human constraint. His human ancestry and parentage has nothing to do with his role as priest, nor his ability to accomplish it. He does not need an immaculately conceived mother. Mary had sin in herself. She was not immaculately conceived. That is a lie fabricated by the papal authority about 300 years ago. It never existed until some pope dreamed it up. It is not true, but beyond that, it is not necessary. For Christ had no sin in himself because he did not have a human father. And the curse passes through the father. Beyond that, the priesthood of Christ is not dependent upon its human lineage. It is a priesthood like unto Melchizedek. So who his parents were does not matter for him to claim the title of priest. He did not come as a Jew from the tribe of Levi. He is the lion of the tribe of who? Judah. Judah. So by human constraints, Jesus is not qualified to be a priest. And that's what three chapters of Hebrews really unpacks for us. He wasn't qualified to be a priest by human constraint, but he was a priest because he is a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. He is a priest according to the will of God in this same fashion without any human lineage to commend him to the role. He does not need a title given by man, and he does not need the approval of pope, of pastor, or of pedagogue. He does not need the blessing of any man or the blessing of any institution of men. Christ is the one who blesses all. He does not receive blessing from us. He is the Son of God, the high priest of his own chosen people, and his role is purchased by his own travail and guaranteed by the singular act of his own sovereign will. No man gives it to him, and no man can take it from him, nor usurp any portion of his glory. This means that not only is he our high priest, but he is an unchangeable guarantor of everything that he has promised to give us. Hear this. Because everything that Christ has done is apart from any human authority, power, privilege, or permission, there is no power, privilege, or authority which can neither hinder nor usurp what he has promised. He stands apart from all human authority. He stands over all human authority. And no human authority can undo his work. No human authority can keep him from accomplishing what he set out to accomplish. Because he is above it. It makes him an absolutely unchangeable guarantor of every promise he has ever made. Because Christ promises victory by the reality of his own victory. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. And we'll start reading at verse 3. 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So what's the source of our living hope? The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, that does not fade away, which is reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. What is it that is the guarantee of everything that God has promised us? It is the finished work of Jesus Christ. It is, on this Easter day, the empty tomb. He has accomplished what he set out to do. And it is our promise in God that we can lay hold of. He has triumphed over the grave and he has entered once for all into the very presence of God on our behalf. When the the writer of Hebrews says that he entered behind the veil, this is what he's talking about. Christ Jesus entered into the holiest place and not the holiest place made with hands, but into the true holiest place, into the very presence of God in the throne room of heaven. And the offering that he brought was the blood of his own death. And he sprinkled his own blood on the mercy seat of God. And by doing so, he atoned for your sin and mine. He atoned for the sin of all of his people for all of eternity. And nothing is strong enough to undo that work. This is the finished work of Christ, purchased for us by his death. And he entered into this presence as an exalted man, the king of righteousness, who have triumphed over all the enemies of God and has won the victory on our behalf. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Second Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 14. Now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one we are the aroma of death leading to death and to the other the aroma of life leading to life. And who is sufficient for these things? Beloved, not only does God give to you the glory of his own victory, but he also gives to you the joy and the power of carrying that glory with you. And it becomes an aroma or a stench, depending on the one who hears it. It becomes this glorious presence and there is no mistaking those who have been with Jesus. There is no mistaking it. It carries with it the aroma of his presence. And beloved, like it or not, prepared for it or not, if you belong to Christ, that stamp is on you. If you belong to Christ, that stamp of his presence is born in your person. Now you can do everything in your power to try and hide it, to try and damp it down so that people don't really pay attention to you but it's still going to leak out. And God will make certain that it grows. It is His work to glorify Himself in you. This is the victory that has been won. And there are many things connected to it. The victory is guaranteed by His resurrection. The very first thing that we see is that death is defeated. 1 Corinthians 15.54 says, When this corruptible has put on incorruption... 
and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, the strength of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Death has been defeated. Now look, you need to understand this. Odds are, everybody in this room is still going to die. Now, watching the signs and seeing the things that are written on the sky of late, maybe not. (laughs) But either die or changed, you're not going to be what you are. But here's what we know. Whether you die or whether you live until his coming, that death has no power to hold you. It is now simply a doorway through which we walk. And it has no power to touch your life. It has no power to change anything that actually matters. It doesn't matter what's going to happen at the end of this life. What matters is what happens beyond that end. And that's the promise. That's what's been secured for us in the death of Christ. Because the payment for our sin has been accepted. Romans 4, verses 23 and 25 says, It was written not for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but also for us it shall be imputed to us who believe in him who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses. Verse 25, this is Romans chapter 4 and was raised because of our justification. What does that mean? That means that the fact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is proof positive that God has accepted payment on behalf of his people. Jesus was raised up because justification is a reality. That's how we know that God accepted the payment. That's your receipt, as it were. You can look to the empty tomb, and across the empty tomb is written in blood, paid in full, payment accepted. And God's name is written across that, and nothing else can be added unto it. It is His work, it is His promise, it is His guarantee. And with that payment being accepted, there is also the guarantee of eternal life. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 20 and following says... Now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. Now I've already touched on this, but the adoption of our lives has also been accomplished. Galatians 4 verses 4 and 5 says, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that they might receive the adoption as sons. And if you have been adopted as a son, it means that you have all of the rights and privileges of the family of God included with that certificate of adoption, which means that you have a home which you will one day go to. Your homecoming is secured. John 14, Jesus said, In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. 
And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Now, we also have the promise of strength for our days. Philippians 4.13 says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Or 1 Corinthians 15.10, Paul says, By the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. It's not our work. It wasn't Paul's work. It's not anything that any of us have done. It is God through Christ by grace, which is our guarantee, which is our hope, which is our promise, which is our covenant. It is the work of God from start to finish. And beloved, all of these things taken together are wondrous. But there's something else that the resurrection of Christ also promises us. And that is that there will come a day when he will come back for us. And that is guaranteed. Three times in the last chapter of the Bible, Jesus says he is coming back. He promises his rapid return. Revelation 22.7 says, Behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Verses 12 and 13 of Revelation 22. Behold, I am coming quickly. My reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Now, very quickly, let me point out to you, there are those who will say, Jesus never claimed to be God. Well, right here, he just declared himself to be what? The Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, those are names which God himself reserved for himself. Jesus is God. Make no mistake about it. But he establishes the truth that he's coming back and secures it with his divine prerogative and divine authority. You can take it like this. I'm God. I'm going to do what I say, and nothing can stop me. Amen. He has promised he's coming back. And the empty grave is proof positive that that is going to happen. And chapter 22, verses 20 and 21, the last words in the Bible. Jesus said, He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming quickly. Amen. Even so, come Lord Jesus, and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ will be with you all. Amen. Beloved, this is the power of Christ's resurrection. And this is the hope of our souls. It is the anchor that binds us and it gives us stability in the darkest of nights. It is the reality that God has assured us in the rising of His Son and in the hope of His coming. In everything that you face, no matter how bad it feels, no matter how out of control, no matter how off the hook, understand that the steadfast hope of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is your anchor in the midst of it. And if you don't see the connection between what the resurrection of Christ means to your everyday life, then I have failed at my job and you haven't understood what the whole of Scripture tells you, so let's try it again. Okay? This is the point. Jesus Christ is raised, and that changes everything. It impacts every single point 
of our lives. And it must. Because it is the single most significant event to ever have occurred in all of history. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the heart, it is the soul, it is the very being of Christianity. Amen. It's a very simple thing to disprove the scripture and to cause all Christians to shut up and vanish. Just provide a body. And they've been trying for 2,000 years. And they haven't got it done yet. But don't worry, God will one day provide a body. He's just coming from up there. And they'll see him. And they will mourn. There's no hiding from this truth. For a little while, they can close their eyes and bury their head like ostrich in the sand. But there's no hiding from this reality. Jesus Christ has risen. He has risen indeed. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the promise that is ours in Christ. We thank you for the guarantee of all that it means. We thank you, God, that in the midst of these days, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is both our anchor and our hope, our steadfast promise, and the surety that everything that we are and everything that we have is anchored in you. God, let us rest in that truth. Let us walk in that obedience and let us be found faithfully proclaiming that promise that those that we love would hear the gospel and be saved and that Christ would be honored on hearts where he is now despised and exalted by those who now hate him. We ask it in the name of Jesus so that the lamb who was slain would receive the fullness of his suffering, the full reward that he deserves that he might be exalted. In Jesus' name, amen.